And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the day of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Morning, church. <laughs> Woo! How are you guys doing today? Good. I'm uh, glad to be here. I'm honored to be up here. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, my name is Jarrett. Uh, I do go to church here. Some of you guys sometimes have been like, do you even go to church here? I teach in the kids a lot, so you guys don't see me, but uh, it's an honor to be up here. I'm so blessed that you guys, when John told you that you wouldn't just leave, that Ernesto wasn't here, I'm so blessed that Ernesto trusts me to share the word with you guys. Uh, before we get into it, I want to pray, and we are going to get into it today, so let's pray. Dear Lord, I want to come to you today and just thank you for this day. Lord, I ask that you would bless today, bless your word. Lord, uh, where I fail, please speak through me and open all of our hearts, Lord, for uh, the message today. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we are continuing our sermon series this week called God Is. We've been doing this series for a while. Um, we as a church deem that it was necessary if we follow God and we claim to follow God, we thought it was necessary to explain who God is. Hence the clever name of the sermon series. And so guys, this week we are going over what I would deem the most important attribute of God. Some people might be uh, not happy that I would rank the attributes of God, but I'm, I'm, I'm all right with it. Guys, today we're talking about God being love. God being love. Um, if you think about this, the passage that I just read, it's hard to imagine where God being love is in there, right? That passage is a story called the fall. It takes place in Genesis directly after the creation. That was 
was a bunch of curses that I listed. But guys, I believe what I want to do today is I want to tell the greatest love story ever told. I want to tell the greatest love story ever told. And in order to do that, we need to start in the garden at the beginning of all of it. So seven days God created, six days, and on the seventh he rested. He placed Adam in the garden, gave Adam a helper. Uh, They were meant to guard and rule over the garden, and they communed with God and walked with him. That's what they did. Then we come to our story. So one day, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and a serpent approaches them. The serpent can speak. And this serpent asks a question, don't you want to be like God? Don't you want to eat from this fruit? And Eve knows, and Adam too, that they were told not to eat from this tree. But the serpent asks, don't you want to be like God? And in the passage that we read, God says to him, did you do the thing that I commanded you not to do? Church, the first thing I want to point out about this passage is it defines most holistically what sin is. We all know that sin is lying or stealing or, or murdering or whatever. It manifests in many ways, but really, sin is always this question. Don't you want to be like God? Did you do the thing I told you not to do? Church, we, when we sin, we make ourselves our own gods. That's what Adam did. That's what Eve did. And they become broken. Sin breaks us. Sin makes us imperfect. And the Bible says that sin nature is bestowed upon all of us. So from Adam, we all inherit a sin nature. Church, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. The image of God, the the word image in the Hebrew is the same word uh, for carved image. So, The same word that's used for a carved image of Dagon or a carved image of Baal or a carved image of a king set to represent the king in the city, that same image is used here. That same word is used here. Guys, the book of Genesis wants us to understand we as humans were made to look like God. That is our purpose. We were set on this earth to look like God, to represent him. When creation looks at us, they're supposed to think of the creator and praise him. But church, the snake saw the image of God. Wow. The snake saw the image of God and he hated it. He hated it. We learn later, the snake is Satan, the adversary. The snake hates the image of God The snake thinks he's better than God, and so the snake breaks the image of God. We get an image shattered. Church, in this moment, mankind has their purpose removed from them. Church, have you ever wondered why people are so sad in this world? Why people are so alone? Why people strive to figure out their purpose? It's because long ago, our purpose was stolen from us. Church, this is the dilemma of Scripture. This is our dilemma. All of us have had our purpose removed. If God is love and he loves us, 
Will he allow that to be? That's the question that, dri- that drives scripture. And so I want to turn now to Psalm 136. Psalm 136. We're going to be a little bit all over today in the Bible, but this is the next thing. If the question is, how will God fix what Adam and Eve broke? How will God restore our purpose? Church, I believe this passage answers that question. This passage defines God's love. I'm going to read this passage twice. The first time, I want you guys to listen. Tell me what you think this passage is about. It says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Church, what's the point of the passage? His steadfast love endures forever. I'm sick of saying it. Absolutely. But church, this use of repetition signals to us what the meaning of the passage is. The psalmist wants us to know that God's steadfast love endures forever. But... That is only one section of a two-stanza structure. The first part, so all of the lines preceding for his steadfast love endures forever, define the reason why we can know that God's steadfast love endures forever. And so church, the psalmist here is defining to us how we can know that God's steadfast love endures forever. I'm going to read the passage again, but I'm going to remove the for the steadfast love. Now see if you can see what the psalmist is doing. It says, 
Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. So this is an encouragement. Guys, you should give thanks to God because his steadfast love endures forever. But why? It says, to him who alone does great wonders, to him who by understanding made the heavens, to him who spread out the earth above the waters, to him who made the great lights, the sun to rule over the day, the moon and stars to rule over the night. What is that? It's creation, right? This is God's acts in creation. These are not random sentences. The first collection, God's acts in creation. What next? It says, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm to him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea to him who led his people through the wilderness. It's the next section. What is that? The Exodus, right? We have images of the Red Sea, Moses. Guys, God's acts for Israel in the Exodus. The next passage, what's after that? It says, to him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. So guys, we get a couple names here. Og, king of Bashan, uh, and Sihon, king of the Amorites. So guys, we know those guys. They're from Deuteronomy. This is a continuation of Moses' story. God's acts by delivering Israel from kings when they entered into the promised land. And then finally we get, it is he who remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes, he who gives food to all flesh. Rescued us from our foes. Well, perhaps that's Joshua, judges, right? When we were low, he remembered us. So church, what I want to assert, the psalmist here is saying that we can best define God's love for us through his acts in history for us. That's how the psalmist understands God's love and that's how he defines it best. He says, if you want to know that God is steadfast in his love, look at what he's done for you. And so guys, right now, the psalmist, he's probably writing in the United Kingdom, right? David's time, Solomon's time. So guys, for him, this passage brings those guys up to date. There is no more history. That's all the history there was from creation till then. And so guys, for him, he is operating under the assumption of a couple promises that God made. Uh, the Abrahamic promise, right? I will make you a great nation. He promised Abraham. Abraham's people go. They go to Egypt. Uh, they become many in number. He promises Moses and Israel, if you agree to be my servant, I will be your king. And so guys, Yahweh becomes Israel's king and he dwells eventually, in Jerusalem on a throne. The psalmist is in that state where God lives in the temple amongst Israel. There's a sacrificial system that covers sin. You know, that when they sin, they sacrifice a lamb. It covers sin. And so for this Israelite, it's like, wow, look at how much God loves us. Look at this structure he set up. Look at the acts he's done to show his greatness to the world and how he's involved us. But church, that structure 
does not solve the dilemma from Genesis. That structure doesn't solve the dilemma from Genesis. Our image was broken. We no longer have a purpose. We do not look like the creator. We cannot be with him. You guys know when the priest would go into the temple, they would tie a rope around him because if he was not totally pure, he would die when he looked at God. That's how far they were removed from God. So that structure, even though the Israelite is praising it, it's not the full picture. Maybe he thought it was. The Jewish people thought it was. They thought he promised to David This is going to be a kingdom that rules forever. They thought Israel was that kingdom. They were wrong, and we know that. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know that Israel is destroyed. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, take them, and Israel is never restored to the great nation that it once was. They just became a nation in the 60s. That's crazy. Israel is cast out. And so, guys, for the psalmist... He would have been like, what about God's steadfast love? What happened to us? But guys, the psalmist is right. We can look at God's acts in history and know that he loves us. So turn with me, if you will, to John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Christ is in history for us, for the Israelite, for the psalmist. He is the future. But church, Jesus Christ is God's ultimate act in history. Jesus Christ is literally God embodied. He walked on this earth for 33 years. Every action on this earth by Christ was an act of God. And church, this passage says that he loved you so much that he died on the cross that you might be saved. Church, if we can define God's love through his acts in history, Jesus Christ is the greatest definition of God in human history, and that definition is love. The definition is love. Christ restores our purpose. God was not content with sitting in a throne room and having people worship and sacrificing lambs because we were still separated from him. We were not made for that. We were made to be with him. Church, Christ says to his followers before he ascends, after he rises from the dead, he says, wait, I'm going to send you a helper. Because the Holy Spirit comes and lives in the believers of people. Church, what is the change? We go from, you can only go into the temple once a year, and if you're dirty at all, you will die, to the Holy Spirit dwelling in all of us. Church, that is the blood of Christ. They no longer need the lamb. It says, behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world and restores your purpose. Amen. Guys, 
God is love and God loves you. Guys, I want us to take a couple things away from this truth. I want us to know that God loves you. That's the most important thing. If you don't know that God loves you, if you didn't know that God loved you so much and cared about you so much that he constructed all of human history from creation to Christ to restore your purpose, it's the most important day of your life. I need you to know that. It's why I went to school for all of those years. It's why I toil over the sermons that I toil. It's why all of these people toil. We just want you to know that Christ loves you. That is the most important thing you can know. All of human history points towards Jesus Christ. And everything after him points back to him. Church, in Revelation... There is an image of a dragon being slain. Think back to Genesis, the curse with the woman. It says, I will put enmity between you, the snake's offspring, and the woman's offspring. You will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. That is fulfilled in Revelation. Church, everything all of it is this one thing and it's about you and you and you and you and all of you. All of human history is just about restoring our purpose. We can look like God again. Obviously not right now. We all sin. We all still make mistakes. We will be made new. But when God looks at us, he sees Christ and he sees perfection. Through Christ, he sees us. Church, our purpose restored. So the first thing, like I said, God loves you. If you want to know about that more, you can talk to me, you can talk to John, you can talk to Sarah, you can talk to Brad. You guys don't know Brad though, maybe. I don't know. You talk to Matt, you talk to Rick. There are tons of people in here who know that their whole goal in this life is to just let people know that Christ loves you and he died for you. So that's a great sermon. We could be done, but I am not going to be done. I'm sorry. You guys will have to be hungry slightly longer. Um, Guys, I'm not content with leaving it at that. I am not content with leaving it simply as, wow, Jesus loves you. Because if you already know that, amen. But I need more from you. I need more from you, Ricky. So, (laughs) church, if we can understand God's love through his acts in history, I think the world will define Christ through our acts in history. See, Christian means little Christ. We are supposed to be like him. If we follow Jesus, we aim to be like him. And so church, the world will understand who Christ is by what we do, by our actions. The same way that we understand God, they will understand him through us. And so sometimes these actions manifest as Actions, right? There are things that we do. Uh, 
I want to use an example. I came up here and was like, we're going to do VBS, Vacation Bible School. And I was like, I need volunteers because we might have 300 kids. We didn't know. We went, we canvassed the neighborhood. Guys, we got like 30 kids. Wasn't that many kids. Guys, we got like 50 volunteers. That's a staggering number of volunteers. I told my buddy who was a pastor in Chicago for eight years how many volunteers we got, and it stunned him. Guys, when there were 30 kids, some of the volunteers might have looked around and been like, they don't need me here. I could go reclaim my evening. Can watch The Good Wife or something. I don't know. But <clears throat> I don't watch that show. I don't, is that a good show? I don't know. I don't know. But <clears throat> guys, they could have been like, I'm going to reclaim my evening. But they didn't. One of my volunteers named Sarah. I'll just name Sarah. She's so great. She said, you know what? We're just going to love these kids better. We're going to have more adults here to love these 30 kids better. Also, 30 is like the top number. There were nights where they were like 20-something. Guys, and we loved those kids better. For a whole week, those kids got to experience a love of sacrifice of our nights. Sacrifice. Not like dying on the cross, but same idea. We sacrifice. Church, we sacrifice to show love. Those are our actions. Sometimes we fail. The other day I was at a gas station and I bought a phone charger. A phone charger is like 90% don't work at gas stations and 10% do. But I rolled the dice because my phone was dead and it said it was charging it. It did not charge it. I went back in there. I was like, bro, this is 13 bucks. Give me my money back. He was like, I don't know about that. How long have you had it? I was like, I was like bro, I bought this from you an hour and a half ago. $13, losing my testimony. I had to apologize. Church, that is an act of hate. And guys, if he were to know I was a Christian, he'd be like, wow, is that what Christ is like? I had to apologize. I was like, I'm sorry, dude. I came in here with that energy. My bad. Um, <clears throat> so guys, sometimes it's our actions. And I am super impressed with our church. 50 volunteers, that's huge. I see people do food pantry. Our church loves people with our actions. The last thing, guys, sometimes our acts in history are defined by our words. Defined by our words. Um, it is not only what we do, what we say, and more specifically, who we endorse. And it's a weird place to end a sermon about God being loved, but it's where I'm going to end it. I'm going to tell three stories. The first one... <clears throat> These are stories in which I think we've endorsed the wrong people and our words have hurt the church. The first one is about a man named Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias is one of the greatest orators of our day. He was a great preacher. He was a prolific writer. And there are probably millions of pastors that got into the pastorate because of Ravi Zacharias. Well, Ravi Zacharias died, and things started to come out about Ravi Zacharias. It turns out he was not who he claimed he was. In fact, he was a monster. He was a sexual abuser. He used God's name to silence women. He used God's name to get what he wanted. 
It was a horrific thing, and it was tragic. It, it was devastating. It, it broke the hearts of pastors everywhere. Well, church, you would think that you would see a universal condemnation of Ravi Zacharias. That is not what I saw, specifically from pastors. A lot of pastors were having a hard time because he was their hero. And so the conversation that came into the world was, Ravi wasn't evil the whole time. We can't throw away his whole ministry. He wasn't that bad, except he did these things. And I watched pastors make this argument. And you know what these words told women in the church and women in the world? That you do not matter as much to Christ as a pastor's ego, not an ego, a pastor's feelings. Church, we as pastors signaled to the world that we cared about upholding this guy, some of this guy's legacy. He should have been universally condemned because that is not the image of Christ that I know. The image of Christ that I know is if someone uses the name of God to do sinful things, they are out. We hurt. We hurt with that. And it makes me sad. The next one, guys, and this is one I did. I wanted to do one I did because, man, this sounds super condemning if I don't. We all do it. We all make mistakes. Guys, I was thinking about it, and uh, I was having a nightmare. And it had nothing to do with this, but I woke up and I went, Kanye West. <laughs> guys, I listened to Kanye West my whole life. I listened to him from his first album. My brother stole it on LimeWire, and it was love at first listen. <laughs> guys, I loved Kanye West, and that dude's whole life, he was looking for something. And guys, when he claimed that he found Christ, I was like, boom, look at it, dude. Look at the power of Christ. He said he's happy. And then one morning, Kanye West said, I'm a Nazi. And I was like, no, Kanye, no, you, come on. Guys, every time I talk to people now, I have to be like, if Kanye comes up, it's like, yeah, but we don't know. Church does not endorse Nazis. It's guys, it was an endorsement. It was like, yeah, look at how Christ changes you. And then he was like, I am a Nazi. No. So that one I did. Guys, one more. Uh, this one is fairly recent. There's a guy named Oliver Anthony. You guys are probably sick of hearing about him. He wrote a song called Rich Men North of Richmond. It's a political song, fine, whatever. Guys, I have seen people post on Facebook about how this dude is the guy that Christians need to make famous. They post pictures of him with his Bible. And guys, you can argue for the song or not, but guys, my point is not to figure out whether or not the song is hateful towards people on welfare or racist, but the church should be very reluctant to give an endorsement to someone we don't know. The same way I should have been reluctant with Kanye West. Church, I am fundamentally uncomfortable with someone who creates a distinction in this country in Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy and the start of the Mason-Dixon line. Is the guy racist? I don't know. That's not the point. The point is the church should not be endorsing these people if we don't know them. 
Because is Kanye West a totally bad guy? Not the point. Should we uphold Ravi? When was Ravi Zacharias evil? Not the point. It's like we need a hero, church. That's what it seems like. We need someone to, to represent us in the world. Church, we just talked about our hero for 35 minutes. Maybe 40 minutes. Maybe I went too long. <laughs> Guys, Jesus Christ bestowed your purpose back to you. He died on the cross even though he didn't want to. The Bible says he sweat blood and asked for the cup to be taken from him, but he did not run. He died because he loves you. The passage says, For God so loved the world, for his steadfast love endures forever, that he gave his only begotten Son, for his steadfast love endures forever, that whosoever believeth in him, for his steadfast love endures forever, shall not perish, but have everlasting life, for his steadfast love endures forever. God loves you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I uh, ask that you would bless us today. Lord, I ask that you would soften our hearts and uh, open our minds and give us great joy and protect us and bring us back here next week, Lord. We love you and we thank you for all that you've done for us. We love you and we thank you for being love. Amen.